Hello and welcome back to the Cine Skinny podcast. It's the film podcast from the folk at the Skinny magazine. Uh, this week, Anahi has gone to Canada. We wish her well in her Canadian endeavours. It's me, Ellie and Jamie here again at the EHFM studio. Ellie, how are you? I'm good. We maybe should specify that Anahi is coming back. Yeah, no, she Anahit, is coming. Yeah, we're not farewelling Anahi to Canada permanently. Yeah, this is not like, yeah, we're not a soft launch of the fact that Anahi has fled the country. Unless perhaps she gets like eaten by a moose or something. Yeah. Which, I mean, Jamie got, didn't Jamie get killed by film fans last episode? Yes, last time out we were wondering, we were in the nether zone of wondering whether Jamie had been torn to pieces at screenings of the film whose name I've completely forgotten. I had a contract killer. I, w- I wasn't torn to pieces. They liked the film, surprisingly. Excellent. So they, they actually all liked it. And, That's good. And didn't, and didn't murder me. Well, thanks to everyone who Which came to that. The best you can hope for, I yeah, think, yeah. in a film screening. Yeah, both for your uh, sterling support of 1990s Finnish black comedy and also for not killing our sweet boy, Jamie. <laughs> what an audience. What a great bunch of lads. Um, so this week, bit of a mixed bag, just tonally. All good, but mixed bag. Uh, so the new Jonathan Glazer, The Zone of Interest, American Fiction with Jeffrey Wright, Uh, some chat about what it says in the notes as unsettling slash troubling films and a bit of news up top so this is going to be a belter i'm excited and i bet you all are as well i should stop just pattering we should just get on with this podcast (laughs) as jamie just told me before we came on we i need to have more spontaneity and this is is what happens when i try to be spontaneous we're just going around in circles we're still doing it now i'll carry (laughs) on Right, so yeah, before we get going into reviews and stuff, there's a few things that we wanted to plug in a short kind of, surprisingly for us, newsy bit of the podcast. Uh, we This was where you probably would have a jingle if you were like a real radio show from the 1990s. Classic bit of news ticker dot mp3 there from Ellie. Lovely stuff. So, first things first, GFF program. It's out. Tickets are on sale for the Glasgow Film Festival of 2024. Runs from the 28th of February to the 10th of March. We will have more on it next time out, but for now we will discuss very briefly a few early highlights from the programme, starting with the opening film, Jamie, which is uh, Kirsten Stewart in a film by the director of St. Maud, but it's not really like St. Maud, which was like a haunted nun horror, wasn't it? It was. Uh, this looks amazing, actually. Yeah, sorry to be basic and go for the big Sundance hit that's coming to Glasgow, but this this looks really good. Uh, yeah, Kristen Stewart is a gym owner and she gets involved with one of her clients and then it becomes a kind of sexy queer thriller with noir and crime elements mixed in. Looks really cool. Really pleased that um, uh, Rose Glass is like just stepping up from making this kind of weird little horror in Wales to like you know, making this big Hollywood movie. It's really cool to see somebody who just like, somebody clearly recognised talent and said, here's a load of money. Here's Kristen Stewart. Go and make something really cool and funny. So that's Love Lies Bleeding. That is the opening film of GFF. And I think it's probably going to be on like three or four times on the night. So initial screenings of it might have sold out, but there will be more. Uh, Ellie, immersive screenings. My question to you, they're doing immersive screenings of Wizard of Oz and the John Waters film Female Trouble. How immersive do you think they will go? Yeah, I probably wouldn't be rushing to a 4DX experience of a John Waters film. Um, Coward. <laughs> yeah, you would probably have to make sure that you weren't sitting in the splash zone at least. Have but, I, ever, I told you, a, sorry to interrupt, but have I ever told you a story uh, about um, seeing polyester and getting beat up? No. That sounds like a, again, for the episode all about tonal shifts. Yeah. Jamie, go on. Yeah, uh, I, I was beat up at a immersive screening of John Waters' polyester. 
Uh, well, I say beat up. I was kicked in the balls. <laughs> I don't know if that, that counts as beat up. Oh, I don't know if that counts as beat up. That's it. Depends. Yeah. It really depends yeah. on a lot of context around it. <laughs> it, it was actually a scratch and sniff screen. So, like, there was like a, you got a little card. You had to like scratch it. And Is like, that not how it was originally released? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, um, and then but there was this really obnoxious person down the front who was like making noise all the way through. Was canoodling with the person we were with, like really annoying. And they're like, and I don't, I know, like it's a John Watts film and it's meant to be like fun and like wild but you know I'm a little film snob and I was really enjoying the film and I, I just said it then by the way you really ruined that film for me you're really annoying and she kicked me square in the balls I was about to ask are you sure it wasn't John Waters it was Divine <laughs> Divine, <laughs> Divine, the, the cha- Divine was channeled by this person I mean I kind of respect the ballsiness of it literally the ballsiness yeah. of it uh, so I mean in a way it's like I've dined out in this story for ages but at the time it was kind of embarrassing and painful but yeah GFT have always sort of I think that they, this isn't this definitely isn't the first time that they've had a lot of like John Waters stuff going oh yeah um, they usually always have like polyester I think they had polyester last year or something like that so um, it'd be really interesting to see how this experience with the GFF crowd might be different considering it's still a really big cult film but you're just bringing in like you know something a little bit different than what they usually do also, Jamie had told me that story before. As soon as he got, as soon as he got onto the detail about the balls, I realised it was a story that I have uh, coaxed out of him on more than one occasion. But anyway, wild things happen at John Waters screenings. Yeah. That's all I'm going to say. People go a bit crazy. They, yeah. get, they channel divine. Wear a cup. Exactly. <laughs> Protect yourself. <laughs> uh, Ellie, have you got anything early doors from the GFF programme you want to talk about? Uh, not in particular. I mean, like, I don't have a... I've not had, like, a proper look in yet, but I know that there's... Uh, it's is it not closing uh, with the Janie Godley yes. film? Yes, so it's closing with the Janie Godley documentary, and there's also a restoration of a Billy Connolly documentary from mm-hmm. the 1970s that is in there somewhere as well. But you don't feel bad that you haven't had a full in-depth look at the GFF program because we're going to make you have a full in-depth look yes. at the GFF program. Time for the next episode of <laughs> I was, the I was game. busy watching Zone of Interest. I wasn't in the the best mood for picking my my seats at the John Waters 40X experience. <laughs> well, you, Peter, have you got any highlights from GFF? Anything uh, you're dying to see? Uh, not, well, not so far. Um, I do think these immersive screens sound good. I think that's the kind of thing where like a film festival, it makes it feel like more than just a bunch of films in a row. Yeah. I think that those kind of big events um, and the kind of one-offs and stuff like that are a large part of what is those and the kind of mid-bill films that you might not just see when they come out of the cinema that's what makes film festivals interesting for me and those are the kind of films you have to pro- have a proper delve into the program to do and because we were making the magazine last week i haven't had a chance to do so well it's got a lot of like, like big things that have done well in the festival so like alice uh were washer's film um th- th- this can really with this the departure for us like a co- like a grave robber comedy with a Josh O'Connor, which I don't, I don't quite, I don't, I can't quite tell what the tone of that's going to be. But it sounds really interesting. You've got films like that, so these kind of films that have done really well, played at Cannes and things like that. And then you've just got a, a load of films that actually I haven't really heard much of. You know, they're quite good at finding things that are under the radar that can surprise you. So um, yeah, so there's loads of things in there to dive into, and it's one of those festivals where I think you can just wander up and sort of take a chance. You know, which is uh, which is what festivals are all right, all about. You know, it is what festivals are all about. Excellently closed off that bit of the podcast, Jamie. Good job. So. Yeah, we'll have more on GFF next time out. But yeah, tickets on sale now, 28th of February to the 10th of March. And another festival that we want to give a brief plug to is Manipulate, the festival of puppetry, theatre, and other things of this nature, uh, which is in Edinburgh from the 1st to the 11th of February. So was more of a kind of physical theatre and puppetry fest, has now added more kind of animation and has more of a focus on film this year. 
So they have a few features in the program. They've got Fantastic Planet, 1970s yes. weirdo That's animation. That's my uh, Twitter um, background pick. Yeah, I've never actually seen it, but it, look, it looks incredible. Like what like I've seen, I've seen seen tons of clips from it, but uh, it looks insane. So they've got that. They've got uh, what's it called Junkhead, the Takahide oh, yeah. Hori mm. film, That's like the stop motion. It was yeah. like it was seven years in the making. Looks like it's like kind of self taught stop motion animation. Yeah. Um, slightly Wally looking, but in a really kind of horrifying way. The least Disney take on Wally you can imagine. Um, and then a few shorts programs from, I believe, from like UK and overseas shorts. Uh, it's at various venues across Edinburgh from the 1st to the 11th of February. If you are interested in that, they also have a, a gathering, which sounds quite. So they're having like some sort of animation gathering where I think if you're a filmmaker or just really into animation, you can just wander up and meet people and geek out about animation so networking yeah again one of the things that makes festivals good you get all these people together give us a chance to actually get them all together don't just be like and now they've all gone we brought them all here but for us not you yeah and edinburgh has actually quite a high number of excellent animators so you know if you want to meet some local animation legends uh, that have probably been covered in skinny loads of times. If you uh, want to meet Will Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Will probably there. <laughs> Buy him a drink. So that is Manipulate Festival. And the final thing we want to cover in this little bit is the triumphant return of the Cine Skinny Film Club. So Ooh. next film up is Perfect Days, the new one from Vim Vendors. Two screenings as per usual, one at Summer Hall in Edinburgh, one at CCA in Glasgow on the 23rd and 28th of February, uh, February respectively. That's a hard one to say. February's hard February. to say. February, respectively, is a tricky one February to say. February, respectively. And maybe it's just you. I find it easy. Maybe it's just me. TheSkinny.co.uk <laughs> slash tickets for those free tickets. Uh, do sign up soon. Sign up when you hear this, basically, because they've been flying out the virtual door all morning ever since Jimmy got the Eventbrite links online. So that's a little brief glimpse into what our day has been like so far loads of emails from event right saying people have got tickets for these screens so yeah 23rd and the 28th the skinny.co.uk slash tickets that's the end of the news bit let's talk about the zone of interest jonathan glazer's latest uh, stars christian friedel as the auschwitz commandant rudolf Hoss and sandra uller off of anatomy of a fall as his wife hedwig and the film follows the Hoss family's life in their kind of sprawling, big gardened house, literally next door to the concentration camp at Auschwitz. It is a powerful and challenging watch. Jamie Dunn, film editor of The Skinny. What did you think of it? Yeah, it is a challenging watch. I guess there's been so many Holocaust movies and, um, and they have become a little bit cliched. They have a kind of like, you know, they're countless you know from Schindler's List onwards um, but Jonathan Glazer does something really interesting and something atypical where he presents it all from the point of view of the people committing the Holocaust and we never actually go inside the walls of Auschwitz so yeah like I say it's all from the point of view of this Auschwitz commandant um, Rudolf and his family and we just follow them in their day to day routine in this kind of quite pastoral setting that well it would be pastoral and lovely if it wasn't next to this horror um and, and yeah so, so it's like it's a, it's, a, it's a hard film to describe because describe it because what it does is it just kind of lulls you into their everyday life you know so we, we follow Rudolph to his meetings where he meets architects and uh, people to help the facility run better and, and and you know work through logistics and he just they talk about it as if as if any other 
company, any other kind of factory process. So that's chilling in itself. Um, you know, they, they literally talk about it in terms of like production and sort of like the logistics of it. Then we meet Hedwig, who, who's shown people around this house, this kind of house she's very proud of, the garden, which she's very proud of. But all through this, you can hear dogs barking, guns going off, faint screams. Um, it's, it's really unsettling because you've got two films going on at once here. You've got a domestic drama. It's not even a drama, just a, a sort of domestic film watching a family going about their life. And on the soundtrack, you have a horror movie. And the two together are kind of like a really unsettling watch. So it's, it's a kind of like, it's a kind of stunt, really. It's like, it's Jonathan Glazer trying to make a Holocaust film without showing the Holocaust, but in the process makes it all the more chilling, you know? So we see the kids, it seems like, like I say, a normal family. The kids are playing and then you realise, oh, hold on, what are they playing with? It's like they're playing with like gold fillings that are found in the river. Um, you know, it's just full of those kind of like... It, uh, moments where on the edge you you see the Holocaust, you know, so you'll see like some smoke blowing, or you'll see at night time the the, the 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 kids' bedroom will light up, and you kind of realise, well, it's lighting up because they're right next to a furnace, you know. So it's it's a formal exercise, but it's a really kind of chilling one, and uh, yeah, I think it's a really it, it just makes it all the more powerful because you know I think we're so used to in Hollywood films seeing Nazis as these kind of caricatures, you know, it's, it's much easier to understand or accept what happened uh, during the Holocaust if we think of these people as these kind of cartoon monsters. But actually, they're just presented as normal people who are kind of, like, you know, go, like seemingly not that different from us, but, like, do these horrible things. That That's sort of much harder to watch. For, for You know, the scenes that were hardest for me to watch were things like there's Hedwig where she gets this delivery of a bag and it's just like a bag of clothes, and it's you know, a bit, and she starts going through it really, and then it's it takes a second to realise, but oh, this is clearly the clothes that have just been pulled off the people who have arrived at Auschwitz, and she's like going through it, and it's but, but with which it could be like a jumble sale to her, and it's just like seeing that those scenes were, were more chilling, I think, than than sort of many of these other Holocaust films that I've seen, which which sort of show you exactly what's happening. So yeah, it's, it's seeing. I guess the banality evil is like a kind of basic way to put it. That's what's kind of put on screen. And I think it does it in a really kind of unsettling and, and really challenging way. Yeah, it's a film that relies a lot on not even subtext. It relies on the audience knowing the kind of backstory of what's going on, but it doesn't ever... It has this weird thing, uh, which is one of the things that makes it so unsettling, is that the horror that you know is going on is always going on just out of frame but there's always some kind of visual illusion or some kind of suggestion to make sure that you don't forget about it. So it focuses a lot on these characters in the foreground, but the background is always kind of like looming over someone's shoulder or behind someone's back or just over the wall of this garden that they're having a tea party in. It's a very, it is, like Jamie said, the, that formally as a piece of filmmaking, it is a very, very effective and interesting watch. Yeah, I think that Jonathan Glazer knows that it's that dissonance which is most disquieting about what he's showing. Uh, I actually rewatched Under the Skin in preparation for this, which again is also like a very fucked up film that has this dissonance in the middle of it, right? So the conversations between Scarlett Johansson and the, the men she's preying on uh, are in theory kind of innocuous. They never really allude to the science fiction or horror nature of the film. The dialogue themselves aren't really descriptive, but it's given this immense tone by 
you know, her strange modulating performance or the, the sort of eerie violin soundtrack by Micah Levi or, or the, the hidden cameras on the dashboard that are quite cramped or crooked and, and give it quite a claustrophobic feel. Uh, it's really interesting to see Zone of Interest use a lot of these same techniques to a different end. So, you know, Peter, you're right, cameras are very strategically placed uh, to show just glimpses of what's happening behind the wall in the garden. Or if we're inside the house, they're always facing the doorways. Uh, they're sort of in the middle of the room so that you can see people walking through the halls and just getting a really full understanding of the shape of this house, the scale of this house, how sort of like pretty and perfect everything is. Um, the performances are, you know, very detached. Again, it's just these people chatting very casually about the horrific things they're doing. And even though uh, Michael Levi doesn't have a soundtrack that accompanies as much as in Under the Skin. They do still provide some sounds, but really the, the sound design is more to do with the fact that, you know, there, there are children sort of screaming in delight as they play in the pool, but then as they stop, you still catch a glimpse of a scream going on in the background. Um, you know, I think that when Under the Skin was exploring the thematic genres of horror and science fiction, that's like more about tonality. That's more about like, we know something's very fucked up in the middle of it, just by virtue of the emotions that uh, Glazer is pulling out of us with all these different techniques. Whereas this is a very detached and clinical depiction of a horrific moment in history. And that's more about technicality. That's more about like, you know, there's, you're right, Jamie, there's no like flamboyant performances of cruelty. And, and there's none of that shocking imagery that you get in under the skin. Uh, you're, you're kind of just waiting for something to really like hit you in the face and nothing does. But that left me wandering around uh, with loads of chores to do for the remainder of the day. But the film was still rattling around in the back of my head. So really, really effective and incredibly dark. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's so, it's so much easier to ima to imagine Nazis as psychopaths or as, you know, crazy people with like, or, or people who are like, have this kind of ideology that they have to follow. But actually, most of them are just like going along with it. And this is this family. They, they seem to like... The, the advantages it gives them, you know, they have this nice house and they're willing to put up with the screams, the the, the smells. They, they, like, they have a visitor who comes, um, Hedwig's mother visits, and she's so proud of her, her daughter who has done well for herself, you know, but then really the mother soon leaves the house because she cannot stand being there. Like, it's like, it's like a, it, you know, so, so that's, that to me is the more chilling part. It's like the idea that, you know, the, clearly, for the, the number of people who committed these crimes, they must just be kind of normal. They can't all be psychopaths. So that's what the film's kind of uh, emphasising. It also has this kind of weird sort of dreamlike sections. I don't know if, we, if you ever can... I actually never quite exactly got my head around what I was seeing. But there's, um, there's, there's, there's a couple of moments where um, the father, um, Rudolph, will read to his daughter. And she's reading Hansel and Gretel, which is obviously slightly on the nose. Um, but, uh, but then as, as he reads the story, we'll, we'll see this young girl... Um, and you, you can really not exactly pick out what she's doing because the, the way it's shot is as if it's like a photo negative and it's all kind of hazy as if it's shot through like radiation or something I don't quite know what they're actually doing there what they're because it's not it's black and white but it's not just simple black and white there's something going on with the camera some sort of interference to make it look strange and she's like leaving uh, apples around Auschwitz for the prisoners who get out to like do some gardening or something to pick up some food uh, and it's obviously linking with Hansel and Gretel the idea of the breadcrumbs um, but at first I thought is this a fantasy is this a dream um, but I, I, later I think what we're seeing is actually we're seeing the, the first point of view of a Jewish person because throughout the film you're just seeing the point of view of um, 
the Nazis. And of course, what we see is beautiful. The, the cinematography is gorgeous. It's saturated. The colours are, 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 are gorgeous. But then as soon as it goes to someone who realises what this place is, they see it for what it is. It's this kind of hellscape. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what you made of that. That's just my interpretation. I've heard other interpretations. I, I, I did a bit of research into this. Uh, actually, and I don't think it's spoilery to discuss, really, but this is based on a real 12-year-old girl called Alexandria, who's a member of the Polish resistance and who left food in the workplaces around Auschwitz. Um, the real-life Alexandria had conversations with Glazer in the lead-up to the production of the film. I think she's passed away now, but she was in her late 90s. Uh -huh. And the bicycle and uh, the bicycle that she rides and the dress that she wears are apparently the very same bicycle and dress that Alexandria herself used. So it's like that real, you're right, it's like a very dreamy sort of abstract sequence, but it's very much the most historically grounded segment of the film. Because the most important thing is that like, these characters that we're seeing play out their little domestic lives are real historical people. I think that the book that Zone of Interest was based on used fictional characters, whereas Glazer made the decision to make it more based in history. And I think that you're totally right about how, you know, it's so... It, it, it must be so tempting to depict Nazis as just like outwardly evil. Whereas like, yeah, I imagine it was probably very difficult for Glazer to give such a detached view of them, to give such an objective, distant view, a non-judgmental view of their like day-to-day -day lives. And I think that's, yeah, totally like, it presents this very interesting sort of theory of fascism, that that's what fascism is. Fascism is like a lovely big house and all the dresses and gold you could ever possibly want. All you have to do is be okay with the sounds coming from the other side of the wall. And I think that one of the things as well that we can't actually go into too much, um, I don't think it is a spoiler, but you also don't want to just tell people straight up what the end of a film is. But the way that this film ends is one of the more again it's a very kind of, it challenges the form of what you expect the end of a film like this to be but it's again feels like a kind of confrontation or provocation of the audience and it asks a lot of questions about what the point of films like this actually is given the fact the fact that a film like this only works because people effectively already know what the story is like people know what the story of the holocaust and of concentration camps and of fascism. They know what that story is from Second World War and Nazi Germany. So you don't necessarily need another film to tell you something that you already know. And Zone of Interest is very, very effective at bringing that idea to the fore in a film that is still a good film. Yeah, totally. I think, I think that as much as, and again, I, it's only just because on my mind because I just rewatched it the night before, but as Under the Skin was like a science fiction horror, except it's not like other science fiction horrors. It doesn't use all the science fiction lingo. It never really explains what you're seeing or what's happening. And it's, Glazer is doing just as a subversive take on the historical drama genre. Yeah. And obviously, I mean, I think it'd be wrong not to mention that obviously the film has a lot of parallels with today. You know, we have a genocide happening right now. Um, you know, it's not over the wall, but it's, you know, we see it every day on our screens. And again, people are just walking around, you know, as if it's nothing's happening. And some people are, you know, encouraging it to happen. So, so, so it's a, a, a film that's sort of speaking to today as well. Um, and yeah, and, and and it's, I think, a very honest film about humanity and how that, um, you know, people are willing to turn a blind eye to horrors um, if it suits them. And it's like, I think it's, 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 it was true then and it's true now. So. Yeah, so it's a, it's a, it's a challenging watch. But I think we would all 
definitely recommend it. Mm-hmm. So the zone of interest is out this Friday, I believe, in UK cinemas, and I think it's actually getting a comparatively wide release. Well, what's amazing? I, I don't know if you should let's maybe get off track. I'm just amazed this is up for Oscars. Like, you obviously Holocaust films do fantastic at the Oscars, but they are the, of a, a type. And the type that this film is trying not to be, but yet this is still being hugely successful with like Oscar voters, which I'm amazed by. I'm I'm so happy it's up for Oscars and, and John Cleese mm-hmm. has got the best director nod, but it's a huge surprise to me that it is. Yeah, I think one of the things about this film is you couldn't deny that it is incredibly well directed. Yeah. And incredibly well performed. I think that people would and there'll be more of a conversation about whether people enjoyed this film. Because I think that that is one of the things about it is that certain films about historical events, especially like really horrible historical events, are designed in a way to make you as an audience member feel better about those things and to feel a certain way about them. And this is absolutely not trying to do that. But it's a very, very well-made film, which puts you in a difficult position when you, you try and recommend something like this. Because I would recommend that people who enjoy Le Cinema should absolutely watch this film. But I couldn't tell them in good conscience that they would necessarily enjoy it. And I think it would, it, it is like quite a full-on experience. I imagine, I, I watched it on my laptop on a Saturday afternoon. I can imagine that watching this in a cinema with a good sound system might shit you up a bit. Mm-hmm. Let's put it that way. Yes, I, I couldn't sleep after this, to be honest. I, I, I felt ill. Like, I can't remember feeling, like, physically sick while watching it. If you enjoy the intense emotional effect that a good piece of art can have on you, then I think that you would enjoy this. But also, we're, we're going to be getting more into films that, even if you don't necessarily enjoy them, you can still appreciate them later on. Yes, if you want cinema to confront you, this film will confront the shit out of you. So, yeah. Uh, Zone of Interest is out this weekend and yeah, go and see it Next for today more of a fun one, but another one that's in the Oscar conversation, so it is proper le cinema, so American fiction Thelonious Monk Ellison is a university professor and novelist he is unable to make a big mainstream breakthrough because his books aren't seen as his publisher kind of alludes to as black enough in the, for a kind of like white audience so his mother's health is failing, his family life is a bit up in the air he decides to write a book that is more than black enough and it turns out it's a grand slam smash hit uh, and this sets in motion a, a kind of trail of events as he works on this book that sort of goes against a number of the things that he always said in his career he didn't want to do so jeffrey wright is monk starling k brown is his brother cliff erica alexander Issa Rae, leslie Uggams, john ortiz tracy ellis ross and adam brody from off of the oc are all in this one, uh, which is based on Percival Everett's novel Erasure, which is one of my favourite types of things, and it is a novel that has another novel inside it. The uh, novel that Monk writes to try and get back at the literary establishment and also make some scraps at the same time. Uh, it is a satire of publishing, of academia, of white people. Uh, it's it's a bit punchy. It's good fun. What did you think, Kelly? Yeah, we were... Um talking a little bit about the trailer in the office and i don't want to talk about that too much because you know a trailer is not a film but like uh we are really moving into a time when trailers are so heavily editorialized that they give really distinct impressions of the film that might not necessarily be true it gives you all the beats of the pathology plot line like him making this book and then getting caught up in this sort of web of lies but what the trailer pointedly excludes is what you said the sort of second story it's not really a b plot but it's just so domestic uh, almost even mundane about the crises of middle age like 
dementia affecting your parents and your siblings' personal lives, and it, like just a much more like matured, experienced feeling of powerlessness and alienation that are separate to the trials of his writing career. Uh, and I found that really, really cool. Like I thought that it worked well since. The, you know, the seeds of the pathology plotline are, are laying really early in the film when Thelonious is talking to his agent over the phone and he says that, you know, he doesn't want to be like seen as a black author. He doesn't want to write stuff that's black enough. He even says that he doesn't even really believe in race uh, as a taxi ignores his call uh, and then moves on to a white customer. And then his agent replies, well, the problem is everyone else does. Uh, so like giving this character a journey within his family that only slightly intertwines with his literary career, I think is super important to that effect to show that this guy lives an experience that is not necessarily racialized, that he can't really share with anyone because nobody cares about, you know, a non-racialized take from a black guy. Um, and, it, you know, it gets into other stuff. It gets into, like, generational trauma. It, it, it just really, really cool. Uh, the film's central topic is race, but it includes and promotes lots of different stories that have more universality to them. Uh, you know, it's also about writing. It has uh, this, like, like you said, Peter, it's, like, about publishing. It's got this great way of depicting the feeling of writing fiction where your characters sort of, like, pop up next to you and question you about their next line in dialogue. Um, it's also about the realistic obstacles that writers face uh there's a great scene where uh his agent is explaining to him johnny walker blue label how this high-end whiskey that they like put lots of effort into and they like master it and they want it to be this this like primo whiskey but no one will buy it because it's too expensive and people just want to get drunk so they have to release johnny walker black label which is the shit whiskey but people will buy it and they'll make money as an allegory for writers having to write things they're not happy with um it's great i mean like i enjoyed the johnny walker whiskey tour the one on princess street but i think i learned more from that five minute scene than i did from the entire tour um but yeah yeah i think it's really interesting about you talk about the trailer because yeah we talked about this a bit in the office and i think that the interesting thing about the trailer i've read a couple of uh, people talking about it and one way you could read the trailer is that the trailer is doing the exact thing that the film itself is like satirizing and taking the piss out of which is presenting the idea that it's going to be one kind of story and then actually saying the story that you thought you were going to get is kind of in here but there's also loads of other stuff going on which is much more kind of humanistic and much more about this guy's personal journey than him just swearing a lot because uh, the trailer is full of like really punchy dialogue and bizarre kind of like action sequences that it's not i don't think it's a spoiler to say the film's not about those things really and that is i just thought it was really interesting in hindsight to look back at the trailer and kind of read around both the book that the film is based on the film itself and see that that kind of you could see that disconnect as either the work of an overworked trailer house just trying to cut something that will get people into cinemas or as a kind of like meta commentary on the film itself. Yeah, like think about the fact that like he, he has at the beginning of this book this the, the beginning of the film this book that he's written that he's trying to get published but just can't because this is the stuff where his agent says they want a black book and this isn't a black book I can't quite remember the name of the novel that he's like written but you don't really get to know anything about it anything near as, as much as like you get to know about pathology which is just this like you know really schlocky satire so it's kind of like you don't need to know much about it but the other book you don't know what he wants to write about but this other plot line that's completely like absent from the trailer uh in theory sort of could be that it's like this very human very wonderful story about just like 
the challenges of getting on in life in your family, dealing with like really weird stuff and 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 incredibly domestic, but 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 human and and beautiful. Yeah. So it's like kind of I don't know. There is a really interesting dichotomy, and you can't tell who on the editing team is like encouraging that or just lucking into yeah. an allegory. As an serial, like, was the filmmaker? Did the filmmaker want to make like an Alexander Payne or Woody Allen style, just urbane drama about a kind of middle class family? But people said, "Oh, you can't do that. You're a black filmmaker. You need to have put something." In. So he goes, "Oh, I'm going to put in some sort of satire about how black people aren't allowed to make the films they're trying. You know, the, the, the art they're trying to make." And that is really interesting i thought the satire was actually really good you know like a there's some great scenes uh, at a book festival where monk meets his kind of nemesis who's this kind of young woman from an elite university who works at new york publishing and she's written this book called we lives in the ghetto and then she reads it out with this kind of section and she reads it like with all the ebonics in it um and and you know of course like in the audience all these kind of middle class white women are standing up applauding and and, and yeah like it's, it's such a truism that this this kind of work is written for kind of white elite audiences, kind of liberal audiences who want sort of a salve for their guilt. Um, and but yeah, of, of course, if you're a black filmmaker, a black black writer, you're going to be so frustrated to be stuck in this um, prison of just writing about suffering. Um, and yeah, so like that that is to me was a really potent, interesting uh, like satire and i would actually would have liked more of the satire i thought i thought the i mean i thought the the family drama was quite affecting and quite interesting and actually quite revelatory and that yeah like i say it's like you've seen a million stories about sort of urbane writers who have family troubles and go off to their uh holiday home by the coast to worry about it yeah like i've seen a million films like that but i actually haven't probably seen any films about black families going through that and of course there are tons of black families who would be in that situation so yeah in that way, it's a very simple, simple, common film that you see all the time. But it's, it's it just by making it a black author, it completely changes the dynamic. Um, so yeah, like I did like all that. Um, I I thought the performances were, were excellent. Like uh, I think uh, Jeffrey Wright. I'm really glad that he's getting some recognition. You know, um, I, I guess I guess for me the film I felt it sort of sat on the fence a little bit because it never actually falls through on its satire. You know, like. Um, there, there are some great scenes where you see him writing this book, um, and and he's, he's he's discussing it with his characters, but we, we see like one scene I think or two scenes maybe at the most, and and I feel like we, I would like to have seen more of the book, and and maybe that would challenge me more. Like actually, I want maybe to show you had to show you how racist the, the American publishing is. You have to see what they're creating, you know. And there's like, great scenes where like he's watching TV, and it will be like, oh, this is American History Month on whatever film channel it is but you're seeing things like Precious and like all these kind of gangster films and like yeah of course as soon as you see that of course that is the cliche of, of black lives in America um, so I'm, I'm glad he's pushing against it but I would just love if they pushed a bit more I sort of feel like it kind of has its cake and eats at the end I don't want to spoil how it ends um, but but uh, he kind of makes a compromise and I think it's sort of suggesting that to, to make a living in this world you have to make a compromise which is probably very true um, but uh, yeah, it could have really went for the juggler a bit more. I don't know if you ever saw a film called Bamboozle by Spike Lee. It's kind of similar. Uh, Bamboozle with two young guys who uh, basically, as a joke, uh, pitch a black and white minstrel uh, show and it goes down really well. And again, it, but that's like a really dark uh, take on it. And this is to me is a kind of softer edge take. And actually the irony is this is a film that's going to do well 
at the Oscars. It has. It's got like five nominations. And the reason it's got five nominations is because it's doing exactly what all these books do. You know, it's like the Oscars is a place where it's going to pat itself on the back for, you know, recognizing this book. But they only, they only uh, this film, but they only recognize it because it's, I think the edges are a bit soft and it could have been tougher, um, you know, because the Spike Lee's film did nothing at the Oscars, mm -hmm. uh, for example. Um, so a really good film, really funny film, uh, really heartwarming film. Um, but I think maybe pulls its punches a little bit for me. One of the things that's really interesting about it is that actually uh, Monk, Jeffrey Wright's character, isn't a failure. He's already quite successful because I nearly put in the um, I nearly put in the kind of introduction that he was like a, a struggling but then it's like you can't write struggling university professor and published <laughs> novelist. Like this and this is one of the kind of central things of the film is that he wants to be more successful than he currently is but he doesn't see he doesn't want to have to pander to other people in order for his work to be more successful than it is but he sees the fact that his work isn't successful as a failing of other people rather than a failing of himself which is quite an interesting position to put that character in because it means that actually he is a bit of a dick sometimes but then that makes the kind of satirical side of it all the all the better because it means he's not coming at it from like a completely pure perspective. He's doing all this stuff because he's like, I want to have a big hit and I'm going to show all these white idiots exactly how easy it is. <laughs> There's also an interesting thing that I noticed when he was writing that actually he tries to make it good. You know, so, so he, in a way he's trying to make a trashy novel that has tons of cliches in it. But halfway through, one of his characters says, oh, you can you can do better than that. But I think he describes the eyes as like being like Moonlight or something like that. So he can come up with, and then he comes up with a better simile. So he's actually trying to do a good job of this trashy novel as well, um, which kind of defeats the purpose of the joke he's trying to tell. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's a good film, but I think flawed a little bit in its argument. Maybe. I read a really interesting, uh, I think it was just like a one-line letterbox take that kind of said that this film was four or five very good films all trying to get out of one quite good film. I think it's got a lot of layers to it and you would maybe like to see, if it were up to me, there would maybe be a bit, like you say, a bit sharper on the social satire and a bit less about the family. But then I suppose that is literally the point yeah. of the film. So uh, it got me good. I've been zinged and I, I love it. I agree with you, Jamie. Like my favourite scene was the one where he's talking to his characters as he's writing them. And it's only really one scene that we get. Whereas I think, Peter, was it you that brought this up earlier that the book that it's based on contains pathology in a lot more detail and it emerges as a story. Yeah, I believe the Percival Everett novel that this is based on contains the entirety of the other novel inside it. Yeah, which would have been really cool to see, but at the same time, like, it is one of those limitations that we were kind of talking about last episode of adapting a book to screen and you kind of have to just go somewhere else with it because a film is not a book. Yeah. I also like the the story you can adapt to pretty much any minority, you know, because there's, there's actually a great reference to Irvin Welsh in it. And mm -hmm. I thought, actually, you could apply this to Scot Scotland. You know, how many, I don't know, writers want to write a, a film about kind of urbane Scottish you know, like literary scene or something like that, which exists, you know, but they have to write about like kitchen sink dramas or crime, you know, like, or write, write a kind of other Welsh style um, drama, you know, like, you know, have you met MD from Creative Scotland? They're all middle class. Why are they making films about like p poor people? Like, like that's, the, that's the interesting thing because that's the only thing that's, that gets commissioned. And it's yeah. like that, you know, it's, 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 it's hilarious. Like if you look at who make film in the film industry, they're all middle class people. Yeah, if you look at films from Scotland, you think 
uh, they were all made by working class people because it's all about working class existence, but it's made by middle class people. Basically, I want someone to make the Scottish version of this where the posh guy from Edinburgh has to pretend to be Irvin Welsh to get a film made, which I think actually does happen. So, And with Jamie accusing countless hundreds of people of whatever he's accusing them of. <laughs> um, American Fiction is another one that's out this weekend. Very good film. Good fun. Good swearing in it as well. Uh, Starling Brown, actually, I want to give a good shout out to Starling Brown as Monk's brother Cliff, who's in the film a little bit, but absolutely steals the show every time he's on screen. He's really good. Yeah, he's kind of like, is he a disaster of a person is the thing? Because it's kind of like his life seems totally off the rails. And yet, like you were saying with Monk, who actually is quite successful, but can't really seem to actualize that. Sterling K. Brown's character, despite the fact that things don't seem to be going well for him, he's very at peace with himself. And he kind of, that's, I guess, one of the big threads of the more family drama is that like, Sterling K. Brown, I can't remember his character's name, I'm afraid. Cliff. Cliff is trying to like show Monk, just enjoy yourself, just like have a life that's your own. Yeah, I, I, do, I do enjoy it. Well, I should say he's a he's a character who was married, but has came out as gay mm. and, and he's kind of living his best life as a gay man. But I love when they all come back to the, the this kind of Cape Cod uh, holiday home they have, which is ridiculous. But anyway, they've got this Cape Cod holiday home and they all come back for a wedding and he forgets that they're coming and he's got his two two pool boys with him. And it's, but again, it's like very sweet, very funny. He's a really cool, funny character. Uh, and I, I think it's a really good performance. It's a shame. Did that get nominated actually? Yeah, Stalin Brown. I did, yeah. Yeah, best I, supporting actor. I think that, I think he's really good uh, in the film. Yeah, so that is American Fiction. Again, out this weekend. Another one we would probably recommend, I think. Yeah, yeah. solid so far. And now to just crank the tonal shift dial back in the other direction, uh, we thought we would chat in the bit at the end about uh, down on the list is unsettling or troubling films. So it's one of these things about cinema because it is such a combination of different things: sound, writing, direction, acting, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you can kind of get any effect you want out of a film. You can make people laugh. You can make them cry. I watched all of *Us Strangers* and cried my little eyes out. Um, I watched. I then watched *The Holdovers* and pissed myself laughing at <laughs> Paul Giamatti telling someone that they weren't fit to pour piss out of a shoe. So <laughs> truly, the cinema can do anything, like all those adverts with Nicole Kidman taught us. But uh, we want to talk about some films that are on the more confrontational edge of the cinematic scale. You know, the mad shit, the weird ones, the big old freakos. So, Jamie, do you have one for us to discuss first? Yes. Or, I, okay, well then we'll go to you. Um, well, when I was about, I don't know, 14 or 15, I went through a real kind of like serial killer phase. As in, as, <laughs> as, as, in, as in I liked... <laughs> We've got it on tape. Yeah. As in I liked films... Oh, about, he's paused for slightly too long there. That's really unfortunate. You know, so I was, I was watching a lot of, uh, you know, Seven and Silence of the Lambs, Manhunter, uh, what else? Like Kiss the Girls, all the crap ones as well. Um, yeah, and like these were like my favourite films. Like I loved like, horror films, like kind of sci psychological horror films. So I was always on the lookout for them. And this was back in the day when I would watch like loads of TV. So like I would circle stuff and find, you know, say serial killer or a psychological thriller. I would uh, I'd circle it and tape it. So I taped this film called Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, which is from like like the, the late 90s. It's probably classed as a slasher, but it's probably, it's, and it's based on a real, real serial killer called Henry Lee Lucas. And I guess what's so chilling about it is how artless it is it's a film where I've been so used to seeing these kind of slick Hollywood 
um, you know, Silence of the Lambs style things where like it's it's like all about the kind of psychology of it and it's like all very slick and all the violence is very kind of beautiful um, and sort of stylized. This is just utterly bleak, grim. Is it actually similar? It's linked to Zone of, Zone of Interest and it's the banality of it. Is that is this character who? has no motivation like he does this kind of these senseless violent acts with no sort of mo no sort of like doesn't seem to even get enjoyment out of it it's like really grim really matter of fact um it doesn't try to explain why he does it or it doesn't tell you go into his back story or his childhood or any of his psychology um it's just utterly senseless utterly disturbing um it's michael rooker um who plays henry who would go on and do like um other great stuff but he's like amazing here is this kind of blank slate with like dead behind the eyes um it's directed by john mcnaughton who would go and have this weird hollywood career we made things like um wild things and mad dog and gloria but this is like so different from all his other stuff it's like it's 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 like a film that i feel is like toxic or something it's like there's something in the dna of it that's just disgusting and then i would never wanted to see it again but then i accidentally saw it again because i saw it like on tv in the mid 90s and then I, f- I totally forgot about it. Um, I, I probably just put it at the back of my mind. Um, uh, but I was went along to one of those all-night horror madnesses, which is meant to be like a fun night. It's meant to be these fun, daft films, um, like like crazy horrors and stuff like, like with kind of ridiculous plots. And then they threw this in the middle of it in between like, I think it was Nightmare on Elm Street and like, like a, I don't even know, it was some sort of terrible horror from the 80s and put this in the middle of it and my god it stood out even more and amongst these kind of cheesy horrors as being utterly bleak utterly um horrifying and again it's a film that just makes me feel ill this uh, its its last scene is one of the most piteous pitiless um things i've ever seen yeah just didn't watch this it's amazing it's it's really it probably is one of the great serial killer films because it probably tells you like it is um but I don't know if I want to see that. I want to, so I want to see Silence of the Lambs instead. I want my I want my serial killers to be like charismatic. I don't want them to be like probably reality, to be honest. This is one of the things about cinema is that when it sometimes just gets too close to reality, that's when it becomes really because documentary, I mean, all films are constructed. They don't just find them. Like they all have to be put together, but there's something about most like you're talking about with like uh, big flashy Hollywood horrors that there's a level of like artificiality and a fakeness to them that means that they aren't as unsettling as something that's very very to the point a film that I want to give a shout out to is Titan the is it Julia DeCorno mm-hmm. uh, which fucking hell like yikes sheesh etc the thing that I want to talk about is the sound in that film because that is where the film like I don't want to watch Titan again in a hurry, partly because I think actually it's really quite daft in hindsight. Um, It's about a woman who has a sexual relationship with a car and then uh, is pregnant and gives birth to a car. Like, it's fucking ridiculous. But at the same time, it's such a visceral, particularly in the soundtrack, such a visceral experience. There are some absolutely horrifying like crunches and judders and a scene with a knitting needle that I do not want to describe um, but yeah it's like the sound combined with the image is so like viscerally like punchy that there is it is that thing of like confrontational cinema even and it really takes you away from saying like this is this film is actually kind of ridiculous and silly 
that is presented in such a way that you're like, oh my Christ, this feels so real. It feels too real, Ellie, help me. Um, I also want to mention to Titan to formally apologize to my partner, Sally, who I uh, was like, oh, well, go and see Titan. Didn't fully brief her on what the film was about. And she was uh, very, very got by Titan. <laughs> uh, we were sitting in the film house. I believe it was just after work. Uh, I was like, again, cannot apologize enough. In the future, I will brief you properly on what the films are about. Sometimes we see it, it's one of the things, you see it written down in the magazine, right? We have a lot of these kind of films in the skinny. You see it written down and you think, oh, well, you know, that couldn't be that harsh or like that difficult to watch. They wouldn't give that the palm door. How could you, yeah, how could you, um, how could it possibly, I mean, that's just ridiculous. There's no way that you'd be, and then the next thing you know, you are in the brace position in the small room of the film house, uh, hoping for the smashing to stop. <laughs> What a, what a life that we lead here as uh, connoisseurs of film. Ellie, what have you got for us? Uh, so earlier on, you mentioned Junkhead as a sort of like horror Wally, which is very similar to, and it same, came out at the same time as the film that I want to talk about. I've talked about it a little bit on the podcast before. I think it are like 2022 end of roundup uh, episode. It's called Mad God, and it's a feature length stop motion animation film that just depicts a descent into hell. Um, so of it, like, you know, it being claymation, not only does the film have just, you know, these grotesque demons and, and monsters, which just have quite like a skin crawling appearance, but, you know, they're doing terrible things to each other. They're, they're you know, torturing and, and, and warring. And, and there's a, a bit where like, you know, as the background shows our sort of explorer protagonist descending deeper and deeper down the caverns, in the foreground, you'll see like a, like a, uh, a zombie crawling uh, completely bisected away from a you know gigantic rat and then you know screaming in terror as it fails but then the screaming awakens some larger monster which comes and steps on the both of them so it's not even just that like there's all this you know horrible gore and viscera happening but that these little vignettes happen over and over again where you see a really like elaborate conflict kind of a food chain emerging before your very eyes and then just at the end of it like everybody gets splattered everybody gets crushed uh so it's very nihilistic and yet uh, the director phil tippett who is sort of carrying on the medium that ray harryhausen uh developed in in that sort of like claymation style uh, spent 30 years making it because uh, if you know anything about stop motion animation you obviously have to like arrange your models and then take a picture and then rearrange your models and then take a picture and then rearrange your models and take a picture. It can take like a year to make a short scene so you know the question that it leaves you wondering uh, is is why? <laughs> why God why? You know? Uh, why put so much painstaking work into something that just depicts you know examples of suffering and humiliation and, and, and death uh, but you know, we're talking about all these films, and I think it's true probably of Titan, and I think it's probably true of Henry. I think it's true of a lot of the films we've talked about, is that like it 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 does touch you how people are so committed to this fucked up thing that they're making. Like when I watched Mad God, I couldn't help but just notice that like this is being a stop motion animation film, something that Phil Tippett not just created, but he like put his hand on every single scene, every single frame that you see, he touched personally um and i think that just you know creates some kind of philosophy behind the film really like like you know is spending three decades making you know scenes of torture porn any different than making any other kind of art like any more ridiculous any more of a waste of time really uh or or you know does an artist who creates characters that are only doomed to get like you know i don't know decapitated or whatever does that artist love their characters any more than any other 
writer does. Um, so, you know, it's visceral. It's very visceral. And it, when I, I think I watched it on Shudder with my brother, he he turned to me and said, so he spent, he spent 30 years on this? And I was like, yes. And he was like, Is he okay? Evidently not. There's a rumor that he went to a psych ward at the time of the completion of the film. But it's that thing where it's like, I wouldn't put it on at a party, but I don't feel like watching this film, you've had your time wasted is the weird thing about it. And I think that's true of Zone of Interest as well. It's true of like all deeply unsettling films. Like you just have to applaud how well they can kind of take you on an emotional journey. Yeah, because there are enough bad horror films, bad psychological uh, thrillers, jump scare bullshit. A film doesn't have to be fun to be good. And a, a character doesn't have to be nice to be the lead character. It's almost as if, Jamie, there's so much more in the world of film than just nice lads being nice to each other. As much as this podcast would imply <laughs> that it's just all a bunch of nice lads yeah. being nice to each other. Um, so, Mad God on Shudder, Titans on Mubi, uh, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. I'm not massively psyched to go and watch it. Should <laughs> yeah, be buried. Deepest, yeah. yeah, you oh. might be able to find a, a, you know, a cursed VHS hidden in a bush somewhere. Cursed VHS hidden in a bush. That's a, a throwback reference. <laughs> Pen drive buried somewhere. Um, so yeah, so those were our unsettling, troubling films. You have been warned, uh, Cine Skinny Completists, you have been warned. Uh, before we wrap up, we need to do our letterboxed rating. So we have a letterboxed, it's at the Cine Skinny. Last time out, I got everyone to say numbers at the same time, and it became incredibly difficult to both listen to and comprehend what was going on. So what I'm going to do this time is go around the horn and get everyone's uh, ratings individually, and then we'll just work out what they are later. Uh, so... Jamie, for a zone of interest, how many out of five would you give it? And then we'll average that out. This is fun audio. I feel that like this is great. This is classic. I don't know why Radio 1 haven't come calling for this. Uh, I'm going to give this four and a half out of five. Four and a half. Ellie? Can you do quarters on Letterboxd? Am I, I wrong? I hope I don't not. So. Okay, then. I will give it. I will also give it four and a half. I think this is Pitchfork, where they do like point eight. Poor, uh, shouts out for a real one, Pitchfork. <laughs> yeah, poor Pitchfork. I really do want Anna Wintour to get fired soon. That sounds unkind, but apparently she turned up with her shades on on a Zoom call and told all the Pitchfork staff they were getting canned. So, truly, sometimes you muck the devil you, does wear Prada. You, you muck around, and then at some point in the future, you find out. Uh, so four and a half, four and a half. I would say four, just because I don't believe in half stars. Um, sue me. <laughs> uh, and then for American Fiction, Ellie, out of five, what did you reckon? I'll say. Four. Jamie? Uh, I'll say three. I'm also going to say three. I think the thing is, we're going to try and renormalize the star. Now that we're doing star ratings on this podcast, we're going to normalize the three. Okay. Let's bring back the three. Yeah, three's good. I recommended three. It's good. Okay. Yeah, I think good. you're okay. If you want a high ceiling, I'll say three and a half. Okay. Yeah. So three, three, three and a half. I think the thing is, American Fiction is a, is a good film with some very good elements, but I think it could have been better. So therefore, it's a three. And that's a white person saying that. So feel free to take that with as big a pinch of salt as you want. That is incredibly the end of the podcast. Uh, thank you, Jamie. Uh, thank you, Peter. Thank you, Ellie. Thank you, Peter. Uh, we are on all the various social medias. If you want to follow us, if you want to get us and get in touch with us on email at cineskinny at skinny.co.uk. Get your tickets for the Cine Skinny Film Club. By all accounts, Perfect Days is another one of those good films that they have nowadays. Vim Vendors in Japan you'll love to see it so yeah the skinny.co.uk slash tickets for those we will be back in two weeks time with a load of patter about the glasgow film festival but for now i'm gonna go and get a sandwich because i'm really hungry
and I don't know what everyone else has got planned for their afternoon, but that's just me. Bring the up, bring the outro music in at about this point. <laughs> we fade away. Everyone's happy. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.